It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, our guest is CEO George Pontiacos. George is an executive leadership professional with highly effective expertise in growing businesses rapidly to successful market leadership or acquisition positions. He is the president and chief executive officer of the Zula Group and chairman of the board of for two of Zula Group operations in China. Previously, he founded Monovasia Corporation, a consultancy focused on M&A transactions, venture capital, and counsel to technology startups. George Pontiacos, welcome into the corner office. Well, thank you very much for having me. <laughs> it's great to have you here today. And as uh, you know, we kind of like to start with the early years and understand a little bit about your journey to uh, your areas of responsibility and your own corner office. So maybe we can start with a little bit about what your early early years were like. Uh, you know, tell us about where you grew up, your parents and siblings. Well, I, can, I grew up in uh, New Jersey in a town called Livingston, which is a suburb of uh, North New Jersey. And uh, parents uh, were professionals. So my mother ran the office at the FBI. She was the administrative assistant uh, to the bureau there. And my father worked for ITT Avionics as a uh, graphics designer and a direct uh, manager there. Wow. Interesting. I started my career, as you mentioned earlier, in, in, in the fire service. Uh, Livingston had a volunteer fire department. And I joined there as a not only a fireman, but also worked in the, for the township in the fire uh, department you know, in the janitorial and maintenance organization. So uh, I learned a lot about, uh, about life and developed a lot of my models through, uh, through leadership lessons learned there. Was that some of your early days? Was that like high school or junior high or was that after? Uh... No, I was, I was the youngest. Uh, no, this was uh, in college. Okay. Early years, I was the youngest uh, newspaper deliverer for the Newark Evening News. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I think every CEO that we've spoken to is either delivered newspapers, or in one instance, folded newspapers for her older brothers at a penny a paper. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was, those early entrepreneurial years. Was that one of the first, uh, you know, entrepreneurial ventures you had uh, in delivering papers? No question. I mean, I was probably eight, eight nine years old and I'm, sh- and I'm having to go collect from, uh, you know, adults uh, you know, who were late on payments. And it was... Uh, <laughs> Learned a lot about the people at that point in time. I bet. Customer service as well, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's funny. That's been a real common denominator. Were you a good student in school, George? I would say I was, uh, I was pretty good in the, in the subject that I was interested in. And uh, I was probably, you know, marginal and stuff that I didn't enjoy. But uh, I was, uh, you know, not a bad student. What kind of influence did your parents have on you growing up? 
Oh, significant. I mean, the whole generation they had, you know, World War Two, and you know, coming out of, or, you know, coming out of the depression, and you know, seeing and uh, you know, a lot of the pain that occurred with uh, you know the economic downturn at that point in time, and the struggle to to uh, to grow and to have a family and to uh, you know to go out and be successful. It was uh, really a, an amazing time to be growing up. Yeah, yeah, and both parents working it was a little unusual for that. Uh, time of, of uh, our development in, in the country. Did you have brothers and sisters? Were you the only child? No, I was the oldest, uh, oldest uh, son, and I have a, a, a younger daughter and a, and a, pardon me, a younger sister and a younger uh, brother as well. Right, right. But mom worked full time, it sounded like, right? Well, she, uh, she took off uh, after I was born and then went back to work probably after my, uh, when my brother got into high school. Got it, got it. And also with the FBI then as well. No, at that time, then she was working for uh, Pete Mark Mitchell. Okay, got it. Well, previously, she must have been there during the G. Edgar Hoover period. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> I bet she's got some stories about that. That was when the Bureau was really the Bureau. Yeah, well, absolutely. What about outside of class? Any sports, music, theater, anything else you were involved in other than uh, your studies? I was uh, actively involved in uh, you know, football. Yeah. Uh, played a little lacrosse. Right. Uh, baseball, and then uh, was into ham radio. Ah, interesting. And amateur radio. I've been an amateur radio operator for quite some time. When did you get involved in that, and who was the influencer there? I uh, always enjoyed uh, It was always fascinating to me to be able to uh, to talk to people geographically far away. And I just, uh, I just, it was something that was, I was driven to it for a long time. That, and I learned that I also was interested in it through scouting. Okay, got it. And you were involved in Boy Scouts then through uh, high school years or junior high and high school? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, make it to Eagle Scout? No, a Life Scout. I uh, disco- discovered girls before I was able to complete my, my... <laughs> There are a lot of distractions growing up, that's for sure. Absolutely. Other than your paper out, any, any other entrepreneurial things you were involved with when you were younger? Well, going, growing up in a Greek-American uh, household, we had a uh, family that had, you know, we had a number of diners uh, within the family. So I was, uh, you, know, you know, washing dishes and working the counter at, <laughs> at, these, at the family diners uh, all, through, uh, all through college. Un- uncles and aunts operations for the most part? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's a, that's a great community. Uh, were your parents immigrants or were they born in the U.S.? Born in the U.S. My grandparents are immigrants. Grandparents came over. Yeah, got it. So kind of in a Greek community there uh, in New Jersey, was there quite a few families yeah, that came strong, with that heritage? Very, very strong yeah, community. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. And uh, during high school, then you said you did mostly work and so forth at the diners. Um, you know, you went on to college. What were some of the motivations or things that you were looking for when you made your decision about going to university? You know, it was interesting. I didn't really have a lot of um, a lot of vision as to what I was looking for. I, I went in as a general business major, graduated with a bachelor of science in business management, and and I uh, I really did not have much of a uh, of a view as to what I was wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And it was a fairly wide open landscape when I graduated. So more of a liberal arts degree to start then and then kind of decided in on business or did you pretty much take business courses the whole way through? No, I, I started in business and ended in business. I didn't really, uh, you know, at the time, you know, there wasn't a lot of the direction I had, you know, from parents and a lot of relatives was, you know, if you're paying for it, which I was, there was no reason to dilly dally. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, make sure you you know you get in and for get out and for and get a degree that you can use very very quickly. Had your parents gone to university? 
My father went to uh, Rutgers and my, uh, my mother went to Catherine Gibbs. All right. Got it. So they're both degreed. And uh, were they kind of first generation university grads? I Probably so, given the fact that their parents immigrated. Absolutely. Yeah, great. And younger brothers and sisters as well, do they go on to college? My sister went to uh, University of Virginia. My brother uh, went to University of uh, Delaware and was a, uh, a big football player there and actually went on, to, went on to play professionally. Oh, wow. Awesome. Awesome. And you, do you, did you play any college sports or you'd kind of been done with it by high school? Played a little rugby, but that was a club sport and that was about it. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Uh, I was working, working too many jobs to really focus <laughs> on on sports. So was there full-time work during the college years other than, you know, working in the Greek diners? Uh, is that when you started with the fire department or a volunteer fire? Right. Okay. And, and that was uh, part-time, full-time? Well, I would, uh, you know, I would go to school. I worked, the, I work around my schedule. So I would, uh, you know, work at the, uh, for the township early on in the morning to afternoon, evening, you know, uh, eight to four, I'd go to school, uh, you know, in the evening. And then uh, after the evening, I'd close. I worked the late shift at the diner. Yeah. Awesome. What was the first full-time job you had out of college? The first full-time job I had was I was a Mason's laborer. Ah. Um, it was a very tough market when I first started. And I uh, really wasn't able to find anything, you know, in the classic business world. So I had a buddy of mine on the fire department that was a, was a, a union Mason. And I ended up uh, working with him all winter long building the, uh, the Lavalette elementary school down in Lavalette, Lavalette, New Jersey. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Hey, it's good always to be at work and sometimes, uh, getting out there and, you know, sweating a bit and understanding what that's all about, uh, is good foundational stuff. What, what'd you learn from that job? I'm motivated not to want to do it full time for the rest of my life. <laughs> Sometimes those are the best lessons. One of the things that was shared with us earlier was, you know, when you're young, it's always good to find out the things that you don't want to do. It was a tough job. It was freezing cold and you're mixing antifreeze in with the cement to keep it from freezing. I mean, it was just brutal. It was a tough job. I learned a lot again, you know, just in terms of hard work and and being able to work with people who are far older than me that had a lot of experience and being able to you know, get, gain their trust and confidence, it was a good learning lesson. What came after that, George? Uh, I worked. I got a job at ITT. So that was the first professional uh, job that you went into? More sales or were you in marketing? I started in the uh, machine shop okay. uh, being an uh, expediter planner and then uh, was promoted up to run uh, their antenna facilities and then... Uh, I ended up running a lot of their electronic, the operational aspects of a lot of their electronic warfare programs, uh, everything from high altitude suppression to map of the earth. Got it. So that kind of got your start in that, uh, in that industry, in that sector. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you started managing people? Sure. Absolutely. It was, uh, it was at the antenna, was uh, the re- uh, supervisor of the antenna facility. And that was there at IT&T? Absolutely. What were some of the first, uh, you know, in the early leadership lessons you gained from that? Well, it was a heavy union environment. I was a young man. Most of these, uh, most of the colleagues that were on the line were, you know, seniors, like my father's right, age. And, right. And a lot of them were uh, not happy about being managed or supervised by uh, somebody. That, <laughs> a young whippersnapper. Well, you know, they had children my age, right? And they don't like to take, you know, these guys didn't like to take direction at all. And that uh, was uh, a, a very interesting, I developed a, I developed and still to this day manage that same model in terms of being able to uh, to demonstrate value across uh, the entire command chain, whether it's on the line all the way up to uh, you know, the senior executive staff. And, uh, you know, what were some of those uh, leadership lessons? Did you get a chance to, you know, kind of 
apply any of those things later on in life? Do you remember any of those early things that you... Uh, I run them every day. Yeah, good, good. And what, what were some of the key ones that you felt that you got in that early area of, of managing people? Well, I think when you're first starting out and you're dealing with a, um, you know, a, a diverse demographic that you're supervising, one of the first things you have to demonstrate is, first of all, you have to demonstrate that you're providing value. So you have to be able to make their job easier. And that once you can broach that skepticism wall, uh, the next thing you have to do is to start not only making it easier in terms of eliminating obstacles, but also to, you know, demonstrate that you appreciate the, uh, the level of finesse and expertise that, uh, that everybody has up and down, up and down the line. Yeah. How'd you broach that wall? Uh, that must've been a little challenging, particularly the first couple of tries at it. Well, it was mostly brute force. I mean, there's a lot of- <laughs> Get out the battering ram, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was a lot of, uh, you know, you were talking about life safety. You had products there that, uh, you know, if they did not work correctly, uh, people would, uh, would, would die. It was a combat uh, product that was had to function 100 percent of the time, and when there were issues like uh, you know insertion force on uh, on pins into back planes and they, they were having trouble working them, you know the ability to go and get an engineer onto the line to see what he designed and to understand why the design wasn't working on the line was really significant. And I think everybody appreciates. Don't forget, a lot of these people had worked, had been in the military. They had fought in World War II, fought in Korea. They had just come back from Vietnam. They understood that, you know, products that don't function when they're supposed to, you know, cause uh, c- catastrophic uh, yeah, failure. events. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So there's no, uh, there's no opportunity to make a mistake. And when the ability to go out there and get the designer onto the line to see the challenges that these uh, operators were facing was, I thought, brought me a lot of, uh, a lot of cachet, a lot of credibility within, the, within the, their organization there. You've had a lot of bosses over the year. I'm sure some have been good, some not so. Um, what are some of the lessons you've learned from some of the better ones? Or frankly, even some of the ones that uh, maybe you didn't have as much respect for? I would say accountability. You know, the, the early lessons I learned was that the decisions that you made were you were accountable for. And, and you had bosses, you had bosses that, that lived that. Oh, yeah. And not only accountability in decision process, but accountability in execution and sense of urgency. You know, there was no allowance for hand-wringing, no allowance for second-guessing. Uh, if you made a decision, you had to be, you know, monomaniacally confident that that decision was going to go and, 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 and have the ability that if it wasn't going to be able to adapt and change it in real time. And I think that was uh, probably the best lesson I've ever learned. Give us an example of that. How did that play out maybe early on in your career or with a specific boss that, you know, kind of ground that message into you about accountability? Oh, there were so many of them. I mean, you're, you know, every day when you came to work, you're responsible for making sure that that line was fed with, uh, you know, sheet metal. And you had to have enough sheet metal there. You had to make sure that the, not only the sheet metal was there, but the machines were operating, that there was enough uh, raw material and the supplies to get the job done. And, you, you know, if that line went down, all eyes were on you. And not only the eyes of your colleagues, but the eyes of upper management and, you know, the cost controls and finance, everything, and it all came down to you. So there was, uh, there was little tolerance. There was no tolerance for excuses. If it went down, you had to, you know, be able to take responsibility for it, sing out, and have a plan that uh, got the line back up. You know, don't bring me a problem 
<laughs> bring me the solution. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, I love that about accountabilities, George. One of the things that we do in our practice is when we talk about job descriptions with our clients, we talk about position specifications. And I don't talk about key responsibilities, but key accountabilities. And you don't try to have too many of them. You know, I always advise my clients, let's do the three or five of them. And then, you know, that really becomes the job outline for how that person's managed, how they're evaluated and how they're rewarded. Uh, did you have bosses that treated you that way as well? In other words, when you showed that level of accountability, did you get the rewards that you expected? Yeah. I mean, I would say that there was tremendous, and I think there is still today. If you are hungry and you demonstrate a desire to do better, there are very few organizations that are going to uh, stifle that. There is especially in large, large organizations, there are, you know, there are re- jobs that are essential, but the career path, not everybody can be a chief executive officer. Not everybody can be a, you know, everybody, you know, you need blocking and tackling as well. And, and people that want to make that their career, you know, and don't desire the stress and don't desire the limelight and don't desire, you know, their function is very critical to the organization. It just doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean that they're doing a bad job or bad people. They just don't have the desire to, uh, to have that level of responsibility. And that's okay. Yeah. yeah. Any leadership lessons from mom and dad or, or maybe working in the diners that you uh, think you apply today? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the the demand that you work, the demand that you understand that uh, nothing is given to you, the demand that you have to earn, you know, you earn your way into into business. And then once you get into the job, you earn your way through every advancement that you have. I mean, nothing was ever handed down. And the expectation was that you were going to, uh, you're going to succeed. Would you say that your leadership style has evolved over time as you've made your way to the corner office? I, I would say that it, I would say that it has complemented the lessons earlier. I mean, I, I I don't know if it's evolved so much as uh, as well. I guess it has. We have it has evolved to the as the as the responsibilities got larger and the and the geographic diversity got larger in terms of uh, global responsibility. Uh, you know that really drove um, you know the model my management model to be uh, to be you know. To migrate as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about managing people and kind of company culture. H- how do you decide when it's time to micromanage and when it's time to kind of stay out of your people's sandbox? I don't micromanage. Okay. Ever. Yeah. You have the Give job. Them enough rope to hang themselves. Well, no, <laughs> I, I, it's, it's not the expectation. I mean, the culture that uh, you don't want anybody to hang themselves. It doesn't benefit uh, the business at all. I mean, there are three things that I that I manage by. You know, one is that I am. And I think every manager has to have this at the leadership level is that you have to be very confident in yourself. You have to be absolutely confident in that yourself, your decisions and have the confidence with the people you work with and trust in the decisions and, you know, be able to adapt. You know, people, companies, cultures, they all adopt the personality of the leadership that they have. So if if your leadership is strong, if your leadership is uh, demanding, if your leadership is has a sense of urgency to it, so will the company. If you are political, if you are tentative, well, that company will be that way as well. And you just can't, I don't particularly, uh, I don't like, I don't want to mentor anybody. You have a title, you operate to that title. If you're a director, well, then you better direct. If you're a manager, then you better manage. And if you're a vice president, then you better damn well be a vice president. Don't look to me, you know, don't, 
I don't, there's a standing order within any business that I've ever run is I don't want to be aware. If you need something, if you need me to make a decision, that's one thing. But if you're just emailing me and, and spamming me on, you know, your progress as a senior executive, I don't want to know about that. I look, I, I judge your effort by the, uh, I judge your effort and contribution by the way the organization, the organization moves and sells, not by, you know, what you've done today on an email. So if you don't micromanage, how do you kind of manage people who maybe get off uh, with regards to delivering on their accountabilities? Is it kind of a shape or sh- shape up or ship out type of a message? Or, you know, do you maybe put them into, you know, uh, a review p- period of time for them to get their act together? Or, you know, how do you how do you handle that when, when people aren't delivering? Well, I think that, you know, people are going to make mistakes. I mean, that, that you have you have to have confidence in yourself. You also have to have a short memory. <laughs> that helps. Well, I think I think it's very important. You know, people are going to make mistakes. People are going to make errors, and I don't think that you can judge a person's contribution in an organization by one or two activities, right? or one or two actions, or one or two mistakes. And the other thing I think you have to have is a sense of humor. I think if you have those three things—confidence, short memory, and a sense of humor—I think that you're you will go quite far in your ability to manage people. So, you know, in terms of Assessing contribution, I think what ends up happening is, particularly in the organizations that I'm I'm involved in, they're very flat. The the levels between myself and the shipping and the receiving doctor is no more than three or four. So you get exposure. I don't believe in a lot of organizational layers. I like to be, you know, I, I know most people's first names in this organization. And I know some of their family issues and I know their kids and where they're going to school and the, that ability brings them the ability to come to me and, and, and either ask a question, ask for some level of direction. If they, if, if they have to, normally they go, I want to maintain a, a chain of command, but I expect that that chain of command will handle the minutia issues that are, that are at that level. And again, if they don't handle it, move on to someone else? Is that kind of the, well, I don't really the philosophy? Think, I would say that, you know, people will tend to leave on their own. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. and I'm not, not to say that we haven't dispatched people because of poor execution or poor management style or a poor fit. But generally, if people are aggressive and they're motivated, they will embrace that culture of responsibility and accountability and execution and sense of urgency. And if they're not, then they, they recognize very quickly that, they're, A, there's no place to hide. Yeah. And B, it's just not for them. You alluded a little earlier to company culture. You know, what are your thoughts about building that culture? Uh, I think what you said was it really is determined by the leaders, and I would agree with that. And sometimes leaders change and the culture shifts. But you know, what are your what are your thoughts on it? What you know, how do you kind of build a culture? What do you think are the key cultural components of of you know, of an operation? Well, you have to set. You have to, I think, not only have exceptional clarity in terms of where what the company is, but you also have to define what's number one, and and. and in the businesses that I run, the number one job of everybody is sales. Everybody's a salesman first. And if you don't recognize that, whether you're in quality or engineering or finance, the way you answer the phone, the first thing I do when I interview with a company is I call into that company and see how long it takes to answer the phone. <laughs> I, I want to understand you know, what, what's the attitude of the person I'm talking to. How quickly does it take, does it take me to get the customer service? You know, every aspect of Everything that we do has to have a dollar payload associated with a sale. And if it doesn't have a dollar payload associated, then don't do it. 
you know, and, and once that, it, that culture, that execution, that demand requirement is out there, the, the company starts to understand very quickly what it's about. Just because you have a title, uh, uh, finance title doesn't mean that you're not responsible for sales, whether it's in costing, whether it's in execution, whether it's getting uh, the margin numbers correctly, whether it's uh, making sure that uh, the SG&A costs are, are under control. I mean, all of that is a function of what we price our product to and how competitive we are in the market. And, and that is job one. There is no other job but the ability to produce product of value and get compensated for it. That's it. And as long as you can distill that down to the organization so that they understand that and the organization is receptive to it. I mean, I've had, you know, been in businesses where there's been a guerrilla war. <laughs> Internally. Yeah, absolutely. You walk into a business and, uh, you know, the company is resistant to change. It's been doing this job, you know, the process for a long time. And then, I mean, at that point in time, you have to recognize who the, you know, the Che Guerreras are and, and eliminate them. And very quickly, I mean, the most important thing in that type of environment and landscape is that if you do have a situation like that, you have to go and identify who the culprits are and get rid of them and then send that and, and do it within days. And that's one of the things that you really have to be able to do as a leader is read people. You can't allow a cancer to spread. No, you can't allow it to even exist. I mean, that is, that is a direct challenge to your marquee as a leader, and you cannot allow that to happen. What do you think is unusual or unique about your culture today at, at uh, BI Pharmaceuticals? I, I think it's, um, I think unique in terms of ownership. Everybody understands their role and responsibility. They understand that their execution is critical to the survival of the business and the and the and the the, 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 the prosperous of the, prosperousness of the business. Um, I think that's unique. If I like look at companies, I. I am involved with and have been involved with in the past. I mean, sometimes that's not there. There's a lot of, uh, I don't, I don't tolerate my teams. I don't tolerate the term my team and my people, you know, I mean, there is no, my people, they're all my people or our people. And, and you're a, you have a franchise to run it, that department, but you're there. Nobody is, there's no team of yours versus, you know, team of others. There's a team of one and that job is to sell. What do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in? The first thing I look for is how much they know about the business that they're interviewing on and how much they and, and what attributes they have that they think they can contribute to. If somebody walks into an interview and hasn't read the website, and I've had this happen, they haven't read the website, they don't really know what we do, uh, they've had, and this happened a lot with fresh outs out of uh, you know, MBA school. Now, it's interesting, the, M the MBA programs in particular, they, they're really good at generating quant bots, you know, people who are really good at, <laughs> at quantitative analysis, but they don't know how to read people. They don't understand uh, EQ. They should spend more time on poker stars than, on, uh, <laughs> you know, than in other aspects of their analysis. And, and, and I, I, so the first thing I look for is somebody who understands what, what value they're going to bring to the business and how that value, you know, may, may flesh out. And they may be entirely wrong. But at least they've given some you know, cognitive thought as to what they can do to provide value to the business. How do you interview and hire, particularly for people that would be reporting directly to you and your you know, uh, direct reports? Well, obviously, the, obviously the, the success that they've had in the past mm -hmm. 
and the failures that they had in the past. I mean, not everybody's going to be 100. You learn more from a disaster than you do from a success. Uh, and then a personality. You know, are they going to be able to, to work with me? Are they going to be able to, uh, to understand you know, uh, you know where I'm going. Are they going to? Do they have the confidence to be able to work autonomously? You know, do they need a lot of handholding? Uh, is it the type of person that needs a lot of you know pats on the back? If that if that is, uh, you know, where they are personally, then they're probably not going to be a good fit working with me. Right, right. What are the, some of the best interview questions you use to kind of get at those uh, get at those answers you want? You know, I normally want to ask, you know, how they manage, you know, how do, how do they operate? What is their model? Uh, you know, what was, where have they had problems? You know, what was wrong? Why did they leave their current job? Why are they looking to leave their current job? Why did their current job leave them? You know, it's not, it's not unusual to have a, you know, an executive out of work, you know, companies change, leadership changes, uh, presidents want to bring in their own people. And good people get uh, eliminated sometimes. And, you know, the question is, you know, how did that happen? Why did it happen? Uh, did you see it coming? Uh, was there anything you could do, do to prevent it? You know, what are you doing now? You know, if you're just out there for, if you've been out of work for a year and all you're doing is looking for a job, I mean, that is a uh, concern to me. I'd like to understand, did you start, did you start a business? Have you been consulting? And, uh, you know, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's part of that sense of urgency that I look for in that personality is, uh, do you, how, how quickly do you bounce back from adversity? Because being out is a tough, you know, you know, it's not easy being out of a job and it's affecting your family. It's affecting, you know, your own lifestyle. And, and it's, there's a lot of stress and strain on that. And how does that personality react to that? How does that personality respond to that? And how does that personality thrive in that? If you only have a few minutes and say you're meeting someone, maybe it's a level or two down in the organization, but you know, it's someone that you're going to obviously have some interaction with, as you've said, you know, you know, the guy on the shipping dock, as well as the guys that are sitting next door, you know, what, if you have a short period of time, what kind of things do you zero in on? Maybe don't know a whole lot about them. What, what do you, what do you look for? What do you try to get a feel for? Their personal confidence. Hmm. Hmm. Are they confident? You know, do they, you know, are they organized? Do they understand what's going on within their organization? Do they understand the challenges that they have? Do they ask for help? And a lot of times people won't ask for help because they view it as a sign of weakness. And, you know, that is, uh, you know, it's one thing not, it's one thing to ask for help too much. And it, but if you, if you have a situation that is beyond your, your skill set or beyond your ability to influence to repair, then you have to be able to escalate that up with confidence to, to solve that problem. And if you don't solve it, then it becomes a problem. You know, if a problem comes to me, I want to know why. If I have to be involved in something that is that should have been handled down below or, or further down in the command chain, I, I kind of want to understand why it, 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 it languished so long as to become such an issue that it is now up at the chief executive level. You mentioned vulnerability, which is, you know, kind of someone's willingness to ask for questions. Why do you think that's important? Because you don't know, you know, there's, there is a, leadership is a very complex, it's a dynamic model. It's a, it's a, it's a landscape that changes constantly. And if you don't, and it's impossible to stay current on every aspect of the the dependencies that go into what you do. So there could be changes in a parallel organization that you're completely unaware of. It could be geographically because you weren't informed of it. It could be politically because nobody thought it was important to tell you. 
It could be a situation where, you know, there are other dynamics going involved. And if you're not able to ask, if you're not confident enough to ask, then you're just going to drift down into a into a disaster matrix that's going to cause you know the company to shut down or go be in a line down situation to be in a and then it starts affecting customers and the salespeople get distracted and all of a sudden now you have a a massive problem where senior leadership is now involved and it's costing us you know tens of thousands of hour a day of the dollars in terms of overhead structure to address a problem that could have been, you know, if somebody had asked the question, you know, three weeks earlier, three days earlier, would have been easily solved. So, so in you know, to be curious, to be, to be inquisitive, to try to ask why, you know, why we're doing it this way versus a different way, why something has changed when the process has been working. And sometimes it's not just, you know, challenging a, a change. It's challenging. Why are we changing? I mean, I have seen organizations, you know, somebody read a book somewhere or saw, you know, heard a podcast and decided that they're going to change something within their organization because, you know, it sounded good and it was a good sound bite, <laughs> but, but the process was working before. And, you know, sometimes the best thing to do is to sit tight and not do a thing. Particularly change for change's sake. Uh, getting back to this vulnerability issue, do you think that's a quality that good CEOs have as well to not always know all the answers? I think that it's, um, I think at a leadership role, you always have to have the answer. Mm. I think if you as you are the captain of that ship and the captain always has an answer, it may mm-hmm. not be the right one at that point <laughs> in time, right. but the, you know, it, this is not a democracy. It's not a representative, uh, not a representative Republic. It's a benevolent dictatorship. <laughs> True. And if you as a leader, as the chief executive do not have that answer or do not have the input to make that answer, then that is bad, bad, bad. The organization stalls, it develops, it starts to question itself. And I think that creates, you know, a major problem. And trying to regain that confidence is very difficult. You as the chief executive always have the answer. George, been very, very generous with your time. We have one last question we kind of like to ask everyone. And, you know, it's kind of around the uh, career and life advice, you know, you'd give to, to, you know, some of our listeners. You know, we've got folks who are early in their careers other than a middle market, people that maybe have their eyes on the executive suite or the corner office. Um, you know, what would you tell them? What, what's important in terms of what they do early in their career in order to, you know, to get to that uh, senior level of leadership that they desire? I think the first thing is to recognize that that there are no limitations to how far you can go in an organization. Um, I think a lot of fresh outs coming out of school really are, are very structured in their thinking of how to advance their careers. And one of the things that you have to recognize is that, particularly in large organizations, is that there are people within the command chain that shouldn't be there. And if they can do that job, you should be able to do that job far better. And if they were able to attain that level of, uh, of title and responsibility and you don't feel that they're doing as good a job, then, then, then definitely go for it. I mean, there should never be a limitation to your career path. And if you can't get there, I mean, I have, you know, I've been in five different industries. I've had, a, you know, I've walked away from, from very successful businesses because I was willing to take substantial risk to, to advance my career. I knew uh, taking jobs that, you know, the people I was working for, I probably wouldn't last very long. 
I knew that. I knew that, you know, I may last a year. I may not, you know, may not even last a year and a half, but I wanted that ability to get that title and that experience so that the next job I would be able to say, look, I was a vice president. I lasted for a year and a half in a very, you know, difficult environment. And I think that as somebody just starting out, I, I don't think you could ever be in a position to limit yourself. And if you are limited, it's because of you. You know, it's a you problem, not the organization's problem. <laughs> and having some failures along the way also helps. There's nothing wrong with failure. I mean, what you know, that nobody is going to be 100% successful in their career. You're going to get fired. You're going to have com- companies, you know, crash and burn. You're going to see through your 30 years or 40 years in, in business, you're going to see a whole bunch of catastrophic events, whether it's <laughs> so pers- true, whether it's personal or professional, and and I don't think that you can allow that to stifle your motivation and your desire to advance. And 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 I think that you have to learn from that, and you have to understand, you know, what transpired. Obviously, try not to replicate it in the next position, but you know, understand where, well, what was the root cause of that. And what was the root cause of the change in in, in, in in your position? And why did the why did you get eliminated? Why did you get fired? Why did you uh, you know get demoted? Why did you have to leave? And I think if you know if you take a look at that honestly and are very introspective in the and the elements that 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 drove that situation, you know the next job you, you won't make that mistake again. And I think you have to go to work every day motivated. You know, I love what I do. And I love competing on a global basis. I love completing, you know, uh, across a very dynamic landscape, very time-sensitive landscape. And if, if you wake up every day enjoying what you do and being driven by what you do, whether you're the chief executive or you're, you know, somewhere else in the, in, in the uh, responsibility matrix, it really doesn't matter. Success is not really defined by economics. It's defined by, by how, you know, how, how much you contribute if you want to. Would you call that passion, George? Is that kind of how you'd phrase that, or is it something else for you? I think it's I think it's passion. I know you have to have a passion for leading, and leading is and leading is lonely. So you know there are people that you know have that passion and thrive on it. There are others that you know, just don't want it. it. Doesn't make you like I said a bad person, but you have to understand what you want to do. If you're not passionate about leading, if you're not comfortable being alone, if you're not comfortable being held accountable for the limelight and maybe the leadership position is not you and there's nothing wrong with being a contributor you have you have to have that as well but understand and you can advance very well in a in, a, in, a, in an individual or, or, or in an individual contribution role but i think you have to figure out at some point in time and you have to be comfortable with that decision as to where you're going to go in your career there can only be one leader in a business <laughs> and but a business needs all kinds of people yeah, and it, and it's, it can't be successful unless you have all those type of people. And those people have that level of, uh, of, of ability to contribute and their, their contribution is recognized and it is encouraged. Well, George Pontiacos, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing us uh, your journey and story into your coronal office. It was very much a pleasure and I wish you all the best. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 